News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you ever seen Mount Shasta up close? It's a prominent volcano in Northern California. It's really hard to miss if you've ever driven down that way on the I-5. It's right there. And it's really something when you see it. It's not surprising to find that over hundreds and hundreds of years, it's become the source of all sorts of myths and legends and, yes, even paranormal beliefs. So what is it about Mount Shasta that makes it a magnet for all of this? Well, Laura Kinnery is an award-winning freelance writer who has written about the mystery of Mount Shasta and joins us now to talk about that. Well, Laura, thanks so much for joining us this morning to talk about Mount Shasta. First of all, it's so spectacular. It's a great question that you ask. Why are we so captivated with it? Well, I mean, one of the things about Mount Shasta, the first time that I had seen it was on the Amtrak train. And when you're, you know, you're passing by it, it stands off by itself. It's a stratovolcano, so it's completely, it's this peak volcano that is just kind of alone. And it seems almost mystifying. You're like, why is this rising out of the, yes. out of the nothingness? It definitely, it seems to dominate the landscape, doesn't it? It really does. So why, is that the reason why do you think that in, in history people have become captivated by it, that it seems to be this, this center for so many different beliefs? Well, um, one of the sources that I spoke to when I was writing the story on Mount Shasta for Atlas Obscura said that when we don't understand things, we try and make up stories about them. You know, we, tr- we try and figure out why it is that something came to be, and because it's so unique in that it's part of the Ring of Fire, which actually goes around the entire Pacific, but it stands off by itself, so it seems like it's, you know, solitary. It is solitary, but it seems like it's not part of anything else. People are trying to figure out why it's there in the first place, and so they come up with all of these different story ideas. Some of them are spiritual. Some of them are mythical. Some of them are geological. Geological ones are, you know... (laughs) based in some scientific theory, but a lot of people, you know, there's the Native American belief that um, Bigfoot inhabits the, the mountain. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is that uh, one of my sources had said that every place you go is a sacred, is sacred or special to someone or something. Um, and, you know, people want to make magic um, mm-hmm. out of things they don't understand. That is so true. Is it also because, as you point out, it does sit kind of by itself, right? It sits, uh, what is it, like your article points out, 15 miles away from the kind of standard line of other volcanoes on that Cascade line? Yeah, and so a lot of people don't realize that it is part of this larger Cascade ring of fire. And because it stands out by itself, you know, you're driving up Highway 5, you're taking the Amtrak, you see this monstrosity rising out of... um, out of the landscape. And, you, you know, you want to know more about it. It just seems very unique in a way that if you were in, say, Glacier National Park or the Rocky Mountains, you know, all of the mountains are there together. They don't have this very unique, I guess, view that, they, you know, you don't see them in a way that, right. that you think, what is that? Why, how did that come to be? That's so true. What are some of the, the legends around it that have developed over time? Uh, well, there were the Lemurians, and the Lemurians were believed to have survived um, this catastrophic, catastrophic event 
um, where I think it was their, their city, there was a flood or something, their city um, was sort of like the city, lost city of Babylon. And so they came to have settled underneath Mount Shasta in a city called Palos. And a lot of people will see them walking around Mount Shasta. They're like seven feet tall. They wear sandals. <laughs> they, they have white robes. Um, you know, that is... A lot of people say they've seen them. Then there are the lizard people who are reptilian humanoids. Lizard people? Also, the lizard people, which is so funny because a friend of mine had actually heard of the lizard people, and he knew that they resided in Mount Shasta. They're lizard-like people. Um, there is a religious group called the Ascended Masters, and they believe um, that they're enlightened beings existing in higher dimensions, and they spend a lot of time around Mount Shasta. And then there are the Native American um, stories, which include Bigfoot, who resides on Mount Shasta. What's your favorite? I'm a big fan of Bigfoot. I've lived in California, Northern California, for about 30 years. And, you know, we're close to the Pacific Northwest. Bigfoot is a big presence, um, no pun intended there. And so I've always been kind of drawn to that particular legend. Or, you know, if it's not a legend, that story. <laughs> you know what? And having just, I just, it was part of my road trip this summer that I did. And so, yes, I saw all of the kind of Bigfoot lore and myths right up close. And you're right. It's a huge part of that community. It really is. And it's so fascinating. It is. So we do, is that how you feel like we clearly, different cultures need to tell a story about objects that seem to be in their midst? Yeah. Um, for example, I was just writing a story on the boabab tree that's in Africa. It's a very large tree um, that has so many stories behind it, so many legends, because people want to know how these things are created. You know, there's the story of creation that goes along with religion. You know, there's the story of the Big Bang, but people want to know specific reasons why reasons why specific landscapes or natural monuments have come to be and so they create stories to make them feel a little better because it's a little scary not to know <laughs> not to know how this huge you know volcano is is standing there right in front of you that is so true well you know what now i want to drive by it again and take another look uh thank you so much for your time on that this morning yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for having me. That's Laura Kinnery. Laura's an award-winning freelance writer who has written about Mount Shasta. Now, if you've ever seen it, you kind of get what she's talking about, is that it's so spectacular and it is sitting there kind of all by itself. And it's no wonder that it has developed all of these legends and lures and paranormal beliefs that have kind of built up around it. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Rob, I guess that's your theme song now. What do, what do you think? Do you like that? Good morning, Vancouver. That's how you know we're about to talk politics. Cars for kids, and yeah. boom, off we go. Yeah, it's very catchy, and I, I, I apologize to people because now it's going to be stuck in all of our heads thanks to Rob Shaw. Blame Rob for that one. Uh, Did you know that it, there was a 2014 Saturday Night Live sketch uh, about the Senate Intelligence Committee report on torture from the CIA that <laughs> joked that they would make people listen to the Cars for Kids jingle as a torture method? Uh, no, but thank, that's going deep. And thank you. That's I'm going to go look that one up now after we finish talking. I will look that up. Thank you. Uh, and so much for us to talk about this morning because we're like this kind of came out of the blue. I know you said you, cut, you started to get some rumbles of this. What is going on in Abbotsford South? 
Oh boy. Well, we have another defection in Abbotsford South. This is, uh, you know, a fun bit of BC political trivia. This is the third consecutive MLA from Abbotsford South to defect on their party. If you remember before Bruce Bannerman announced yesterday that he was leaving BC United to go to the Conservatives, you had Daryl Plekis, who uh, left to become the Speaker. Uh, And then before that, you had John Van Dongen, who left the BC Liberals to become the Conservative uh, MLA. So something in the water in Abbotsford South. But but, uh, the, the move here is a big one because Bruce Bannerman leaving BC United to go to the BC Conservatives uh, is a big shot in the arm for that party. He joins John Rustad, also a former uh, liberal who uh, was ejected from that party for his views on on climate science. Uh, and now the two of them uh, are going to be in the legislature uh, as an official party. And it's fascinating because, uh, you know, I think it's a sign of momentum uh, for the BC Conservatives that have been riding high. We talked about uh, the Main Street research poll that shows them in second place in British Columbia, which I'm still not sure I believe, but um, it's hard to argue. It's hard to argue that uh, that they're not really enjoying a kind of run of momentum here and getting another member is a big shot in the arm for that party. Right. Okay. So we're going to talk more about that, the impact of it coming up. But first, let's talk about how this happened. Were there any signs of this and what would prompt someone like Bruce Bandman to leave BC United? Well, I talked to him yesterday and he pointed to a really mischievous um, motion that the NDP government put on the floor of the House back in April. And the motion called for all MLAs in the legislature to denounce the Freedom Convoy. So you remember the... Um, I remember this, the, yeah. This, the convoy in, in Ottawa that had uh, blocked in front of uh, Parliament Hill and some of the, the border crossings. You know, these motions are non-binding. They're just designed, and the parties do this to each other, to put controversial issues on the floor and hope that some of the members who hold those views are really stressed and break with their party leader and cause a whole big bunch of drama. Well, the the BC United Party said, look, we are going to vote in favor of denouncing the Freedom Convoy. And if you can't bring yourself to do it, um, take a walk away from the building. Don't vote. Don't vote against us. We're all voting together in favor of this NDP motion. Uh, and if you can't do it, leave. And Bruce Bannerman says that he decided to leave and he felt ashamed in his own words that he didn't stand up and uh, vote his conscience there and that he didn't like the fact that the party continues to tell him what to do, that he has to vote in line with uh, with what they want and say what they say and read their script. It's a common criticism well, yeah, here. Did he not know this yeah. when he joined a political <laughs> party and well, became this... a candidate for them? Uh-huh. Yes, he's not a political, um, you know, newbie. He was the mayor yeah. of Abbotsford. He understands how this works. He took the money exactly. from BC United to run. He arguably is elected in part because he runs under a banner that's very popular in his riding. Gets in, says, "You want me to do what now? I have to listen to all of the positions of this right. party." And and then yeah, but we hear it from MLAs every now and again. They think they're going to be doing more here than running around reading pieces of paper written by kids in short pants, um, you know, who aren't elected. And that's that really ticks them off. And, <laughs> and so so Bandman didn't like that. And he stewed about it. He's having a bit of a break 
um, with his BC United caucus. There were some issues there of him not being very popular, but him not liking some of his other caucus colleagues got very distant. And then he just, John Rustad uh, told me he met him last month randomly in an event in Abbotsford and said, hey, you know, let's let's chat. And that led to a conversation a couple of weeks ago. And next thing you know, um, he's uh, crossing the floor. And uh, so you know, these things happen in politics and it, it, it's interesting because we sort of, it, it's not really maybe about um, the individual kind of vote. It's more about someone getting frustrated at the system and feeling like they, they want to do their own thing. But here's what I wonder about this. I don't know why a politician decides to do this when if they just looked at history to see how voters... Uh, people react when you do something like this, and it's never good. Like you mentioned John Van Dongen, you mentioned Daryl Plekis. Well, voters weren't exactly happy with the fact that they did this. What makes what makes Bruce Bannon think that he, he's going to be different? Yeah, no, typically when you do this, you get slaughtered in the yeah. next election. Um, and this is that includes federally, where some um, politicians have crossed the floor to become cabinet ministers and other parties. And uh, I, I think... Um, you know, the the hope from Bandman is that they can lure more people from the BC United Party, more center right people. And there are there are folks there uh, who might be willing to jump ship. And if you can get enough people and if the conservatives under Rustad are serious about fielding 93 candidates and, that, and it's a big if because it's a lot of work to do that. And if they ride a momentum at just the same time as people are are happy about the federal conservative party under Pierre Polyev and they confuse the two and all these factors sort of line up, you could find yourself at the, at the start of a movement in which you are far, far more important than right. you were if you, if you stayed at the party. Sometimes you sort of, I think Paul, especially Plekis and Van Dongen and some others have realized that their future, if they stay is very limited. They're never going to be the superstar they right. think they are in their minds in their party. But if they leave, they're much more important uh, hmm. because they might be at the start of something big. And I, and I think that's part of it, too. OK, we're going to talk about some of the reaction to this, what all of this means for the legislature. We'll have more with Rob Shaw when we come back. All right, we're back with Rob Shaw talking about this latest development in B.C. politics. Of course, Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. Now, Rob, what does this mean for the legislature if we now have what, three kind of parties that have, well, four, if you count the NDP, like official party status? Yeah, we haven't seen that. I was just checking this out this morning. I think since around there was there was a time in 1972 where we had sort of four official parties that actually had several seats in the House, but not. I think you probably have to go back to um, uh, 1952 where we had really? sort of social credit starting up, and uh, the Tories and the Liberals and the CCF and. And uh, so it has, this hasn't happened in a long time where you have four officially recognized parties in the House because you need at least two MLAs to be recognized. And what it means is that the B.C. Conservatives will now get a whole bunch more money from the legislature to hire staff, to do research. They're going to be uh, offered to sit on all the parliamentary committees. They're going to essentially become the B.C. Greens. They'll have all the resources of the B.C. Greens who have a pretty big profile uh, for just two members and it will change the dynamic in the house where you will now have extra you know people jumping up in question period who aren't the official opposition you will have just sort of a, a, a an interesting functioning of the place where there's four actual parties doing work right. and I, I think that is 
that is going to that dynamic will be quite interesting because it's um, it's certainly giving, going to give the conservatives a bigger platform from which to talk about things in the right. floor of the house. But the, but the difference being that the BC Greens were elected as BC Greens. These two these mm-hmm. two members were not elected as as conservatives. I, I want to ask though about the reaction within the BC United Party, like Kevin Falcon, the leader. What was the reaction on that side? Well, there was an emergency caucus meeting by uh, Kevin Falcon. He emerged to, you know, blast Bruce Bannon for betraying his constituents and and said he was a problem inside the party and and on and on. But this stings BC United because we talked about their big crime plan, well, yeah. which also failed to pick up momentum because of Premier David Eby. And then on the second day, when they want to come back, circle back to it, uh, it gets taken out at the knees by this. And so the it kind of uh, stops BC United's momentum in its path, but it also raises, I think it gets people whispering inside the party about the leadership of Kevin Falcon, about who might go next, about whether the BC United name change was the right idea, about all sorts of things. And the hardest job in BC politics, surprisingly, is opposition leader, because you have no power and you're trying to herd a group of cats around in the form of MLAs who don't want to be herded you have nothing to offer them. You can't give them cabinet posts. And everyone's whining and complaining because you didn't win. And it's very nice. it's very difficult. And so it's even more difficult a job for him now with this weakness of someone leaving. Two people, you know, one he fires, Kevin Falcon fired John Rustad, and now Vanman leaves. And we're watching to see if any more decide to make that jump too. And it could be Bad news for the leadership of, of Falcon and the party. And given the fact that the name change, which was so controversial and has caused so many issues, wasn't one of the reasons for that because the conservative wing of the former BC Liberal Party didn't like having Liberal in the name. That's exactly right. Yeah. And the, the, by changing the name, the hope was that the federal conservatives and federal liberals could coalesce around a new party, BC United. And just to be clear, the BC conservatives are not linked to the federal conservatives. Yes. There's no, there's no connection there. Yeah. They enjoy the popularity of the federal conservatives to, through confusion. But Pierre Polyevre and the, and the federal conservatives, you know, um, he appears in photos when he comes to British Columbia with Kevin Falcon, not with John Rustad. And so that, that linkage, you know, the BC United is going to have to do some work to, to show voters that a little bit more. Is, was it the right idea to change the name? The thinking still is that they didn't, they didn't want to be associated with the federal liberals at a time when Justin Trudeau was very unpopular among some circles. But it's a, it's a tough battle to convince voters um, to listen to you <laughs> between elections when you're the second place party and you're changing your name. And so that remains an open question. We might we not might not be able to write the chapter on whether that was the right call or not until after the next election. And so, what was Kevin Vulcan saying about this yesterday? Well, he was saying, you know, he he um, it was too bad, but uh, you know, basically, see you later, uh, Bruce Bannon, and that if you don't want to be part of the team, politics is a team sport, and you can you can take a hike. And that's pretty much the only thing he was able to say. A Bannon kind of ghosted his leader for 24 hours uh, before he left and nice. uh, not taking calls. And um, the party was, there was a bunch of rumblings that this might happen because they had, they had heard Bannon talk about being unhappy before, but they never thought he was going to do anything about it. And so no one was quite sure the United was waiting with a press release that they were ready to press send on, but they weren't sure if 
Bannon was going to follow through. And then suddenly the conservatives announced it on social media and, and bang, off they went. So I think there was a little bit of hope that he might not do this. Uh, but once he did, Falcon just launched on on Bannon. And um, that was his only his only play. You know, I I think there's a concerted effort now by Bannon and others to to lure people over. And so Falcon's going to have to do this rear guard defense to shore up his caucus and make sure that other people aren't unhappy and and might take a walk as well. Or an opportunity him for to, to remake the party in his in the image that he wants to. Sure. I mean, the problem is going to be that, um, that you know, if the conservatives do remain strong, that no matter how you remake the party, your traditional voter base is split, the center-right split, as they call it, where, you know, what used to be a united block of voters voting for the BC Liberals, anywhere between the center and the right, uh, and that number outnumbered the left progressive vote almost every time in the history of British Columbia, the NDP have won like four or five elections. That was very powerful. And if you split that up, then the NDP are are much, much easier uh, to to win an election. And so that, you know, Falcon might be able to put the platform together that he wants and he might be able to run what he wants on the name that he wants. But if that split happens and, and um, that's a path, very easy path for the NDP for another majority government. All right. Interesting times, Rob. Thank you. Okay, take care. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, we are going to talk about our 911 system. It, you know, it's one of the worst things that you could possibly imagine. Like you have an emergency, an awful situation, you desperately need help. So you call 911 and then you wait. Or maybe there's even no answer. It rings and rings and rings. And we've heard about that happening in the last couple of years. And it has become clear that our 911 system needs help. Well, now the union that represents dispatchers in BC is trying to put that on the front burner, asking municipal leaders to help them push for big changes. Donald Grant is the president of the Emergency Communications Professionals of BC and joins us now. Donald, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Is the 911 system broken? So over the last month, we've seen uh, uh, emergency callers wait up to 10 to 15 minutes to be connected with an emergency call taker. From January to July this year, we've seen more than 20% increase in 911 call volumes. Our operators are stretched thin, and they're working more overtime, forced overtime shifts, and missing breaks more than ever. Um, we're at terrible risk of burnout. And what this, uh, uh, what we're putting on the agenda right now is uh, essentially overhauling the 911 system. Uh, overhauling it how? What needs to happen here? So the 911 system uh, currently does not have any mandatory standards. So what we're looking for is to essentially put in uh, a service levels that require the 911 system to answer people's calls immediately and get help on the way fast. Part of this uh, critical issue is that making sure that we have enough 911 operators. And with calls increasing 20% a year over year, we're having issues with uh, the funding keeping up to uh, be able to hire and retain the 911 operators that we need. So with the, that 20% increase in calls, we need uh, uh, what, what, right now what we're looking at is 125 new call takers needed and 22 more dispatchers. These numbers are, are very, very high in proportion to the number of operators we have now. And uh, what that really means is making sure that there's someone on the other line of help, uh, on the other line of the phone right. there to help you when you need it. Now, Donald, I know this work has been ongoing. The government's talked about this too, but like, is it not successful? Are we not able to recruit people? Like, what is going on? 
So the one of the root causes is a very convoluted governance structure for the 901 system. Um, right now, 901 is governed by regional districts, and there's a patchwork of different contracts that flow into ECOM for various police and fire and 911 services. What this means is that we have to bring over 200 key stakeholders into alignment to uh, essentially overhaul the 911 system. Is it 200? This is a tremendous... Like 200 oh. stakeholders? That's right. So right now, ECOM dispatches from 99% of the province, 40 uh, fire departments, and 33 police agencies. What this means is that local governments are essentially in charge of this 911 service. We have to bring all these municipalities into line in order to move forward as one to fix the system. Okay, so you want the, the Union of BC Municipalities with their convention is next week. You want them to put this high up on their agenda. That's right. Uh, it's critical that this is high up on the agenda so that we can fix the system now. And you want them to lobby the provincial government. I mean, ten. you said 10 to 15 minutes. Some people were waiting to call 911 this summer. That feels incredibly unacceptable. It's absolutely unacceptable. And, you know, our, our folks uh, hear the panic and desperation in people's voices when they're hearing that recorded announcement and they're waiting to be on hold. It's absolutely heartbreaking to know that someone is waiting with a recorded announcement at the worst moment of their lives. Do we know, is it like ambulance? Is it fire? Is it police? What are they waiting for? Yeah, so uh, every single emergency uh, in British Columbia tends to flow through the 911 system. We're dealing with basically every single news story that you have on your on your show. We're dealing with a domestic in progress. We're dealing with a, a stabbing that's happening on transit. We're dealing with a heart attack that's happening in another part of the province. We're dealing with a house that's on fire. Um, it, it is really the nexus of all emergency services in British Columbia. Um, our operators are highly skilled, highly trained to be able to deal with all these emergencies. What we what we critically need is this system to be overhauled to make sure that there's someone there to answer your call when you need it. Okay, so you're saying that you, it doesn't even get to the point where you know if it's ambulance, fire, or police. It's just waiting to get the phone answered. That's right. Okay, this this is a terrible situation then. And why the call volumes? You said the call volumes had increased this year. Do we know why? Uh, we're seeing a, a, a significant increase in more violent, more volatile, and more complex uh, incidents that are happening. We've seen the wildfires uh, take take hold in our province. We're seeing climate emergencies. We're seeing, uh, you know, just random attacks on people on the street. Um, these incidences are all accumulating in a growing number of 911 calls. Okay, so we definitely need more people. What else needs to be done? So there are uh, really three parts to this. So the first part is implementing the mandatory standards. The second part is overhauling the governance system so that we aren't going to these 200 plus folks to bring them into alignment to make it much more able to react to the realities and emergency circumstances that we're charged with dealing with. And then the other part of it is making sure that municipalities are able to fund it and have more funding streams than just uh, than just property taxes to be able to, to react to this. And what that really takes is the province stepping in to help. Okay. Do you get any sense that this is going to be addressed, Donald? Like, have you had interest in municipal government saying, yes, okay, we have to talk about this? There is intense interest in fixing the system. And uh, with what we've seen over the last two years, the 911 system really was brought into the, the light about the, the cracks in the service that, that existed that were only made worse in the heat dome and the flooding. Um, I've, been on, I've been pushing for this ever since I was elected into president, and we've been uh, driving this as hard as we can. All right, we'll see what happens next week. Uh, thanks for your time on that. 
Thank you so much. Donald Grant is president of Emergency Communications Professionals of BC. They're saying the 911 system needs an overhaul and needs it fast. I don't think anybody anybody should be waiting even a couple of minutes to have your call answered when you call 911. I think that's something we can all agree on, right? So the UBCM convention, which is the Union of BC Municipalities, happens next week. There's always a lot of news that comes out of this because it's the chance for municipalities all over BC to get the attention of the provincial government with the issues that they find most important. So let's see if this issue is up there on that list. If this is Mornings with Simi. I'm not going to lie here. I struggled in chemistry class back in high school. I mean, I felt like it got really complicated really fast. And then, you know, I was lost and that was that. But there is a professor at Simon Fraser University who believes that he can use art to make chemistry more accessible and engaging. And listen, if that's the case, well, then sign me up again. Maybe I can learn something here, too. So Dr. Vance Williams is with us, a professor and associate dean of the Department of Chemistry at Simon Fraser University. Thanks for being with us today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You're going to make art and chemistry more engaging. How do you plan on doing this? Uh, well, I, I'm not sure I'm trying to make art more engaging because I think it already is really engaging. But uh, as you said, a lot of people are turned off by chemistry because we have a really complicated language. Uh, we use lots of basically pictograms and math. Uh, and so you tell somebody at dinner party you're a chemist and they tend to glaze over or they tell you about how that's what kept them out of med school. <laughs> people find it that scary? Uh, a lot of people do. I'm an organic chemist, so I teach the uh, Intro Organic, which is the course that everyone's told is terrifying at university, especially if you want to go to med school. So, yeah, it, it, people do tend to be a little bit scared of it. I, I never found it that difficult, but that's just because my brain's wired that way. Yeah. Um, also, you are a professor of chemistry, so I highly doubt you found it that difficult. But what, where do you think the rest of us get hung up? Well, what happens to us? Well, I do think that the language is, is a real problem because, the, like, all science uses jargon, and 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 we also tend to uh, default to throwing a lot of words at people and, and hoping that the facts stick. Uh, and so for me, that's where the art comes in, is that if you can maybe break the ice a little bit with a, with a picture and say, you know, show them something, that they say, wow, that's beautiful – uh, and then they, then you tell them it's science. Uh, that probably throws them off long enough you might get to, to talk to them about uh, what you're doing. So how are you going to improve this for us then? How can, I lear- how can I learn more about chemistry with the help of art? Well, so I got into this by, uh, by taking photographs as part of my research. Uh, so I'm an organic materials chemist. And, and so uh, like a lot of other people, I was trying to engage the public uh, through social media. And I found that if you don't use pictures, you you don't get people engaged. So I would post these microscopy images that I take and, and uh, uh, they look like abstract art to a lot of people. Uh, and, and so I would, I would be posting these pictures. And then I started to uh, tell stories around the materials and, and that often would get some really interesting conversations going. Okay. And so how can you broaden that out for the rest of us? Uh, well, so, so maybe as an example, uh, so talking about common organic materials and, and, and organic molecules and one that I always found very interesting because uh, I, I, when my mother was, was young back in the 1950s, uh, she developed tuberculosis and uh, what saved her life was the drug isoniazid. 
which if you just show them the structure of isoniazid, everyone, again, is going to get bored. It's just an organic molecule structure. But I, I showed them this microscopy image, which is this kind of kaleidoscope of, of crystals under a microscope with lots of, lots of colors. And, and so by starting with the picture and then explaining the picture and maybe bringing in family history, uh, it's a lot more engaging than just hurling the facts about tuberculosis and, and the drug and how it works in the human body. Now, these pictures are spectacular, but how, how do you capture these pictures? How do you do them? Uh, so it's actually not super high tech. Uh, we have a microscope uh, that is, is like a lot of other like microscopes that people would have used maybe in high school uh, with one twist that they have polarizers. Uh, so the same type of thing you'd have in polarized sunglasses. And basically there's one of these above and one below. And, and so you take a material that might just look like a boring white powder. But when you look at it through this, uh, the, the polarizers give it uh, a lot of uh, colors or bring out a lot of colors that wouldn't have been obvious otherwise. Uh, and, and so I'll, I'll take samples and I'll put them on a slide and sometimes I melt them. Sometimes I kind of let them uh, solvent evaporate and, and then uh, I just go hunting for, for what I think are uh, pretty pictures. And do you, and that's how you work on them. You don't paint anything like that. You think, no, this is the natural state for the most part. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I'm not an artist. Uh, I, 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 I don't know. It sounds I'm like you are. Glad. It sounds a little bit like well, you are. I, uh, well, uh, not, not in the sense that I can paint to save my life. Uh, and uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for what artists do. They, they work really hard. And, and I, I, I feel like a lot of times I'm more like uh, wandering along the shore picking up pretty seashells. Uh, just what I'm finding is under the microscope. And, and if people think they're beautiful, then awesome. And maybe they'll get attracted to chemistry at the same time. Now, where can people check these out? I know you've got them on social media. Can we all look at them there? Absolutely, yeah. The, the account is, is open on, on social media, or is, is public on social media, uh, and I'm on all the other usual suspects. Uh, I have uh, videos on YouTube as well. Okay, and what's the account's name? Oh, now you're testing me. Uh, I believe my <laughs> Instagram is uh, vance.williams, uh, uh, if I recall correctly. I love that you have to search that out. I love that you have to, most people know right off the bat there. We'll have to search for you on there. It's Dr. Vance Williams from Simon Fraser University. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. Appreciate that. He turns chemistry into art. You should definitely check it out online. This is Mornings with Simi. When John Rustad spoke up about concerns in his writing, which are different than the concerns of, say, Metro Vancouver, Kevin told him, you either toe the line or out you go, and out he went. Uh, you know, Kevin said that we are a big tent party. I guess maybe not so big, huh? Okay. That's Bruce Bandman there, the MLA for Abbotsford South. The question we're asking this morning is, why do politicians cross the floor? Now, crossing the floor refers to when an elected politician decides to change parties. The latest case being that gentleman right there that we just heard. It's Bruce Bandman in the writing of Abbotsford South. He talked about one of the reasons why he left. But my question is always, why do this at all? Do politicians not look at history and how they get treated by voters when they do something like this? So we're going to look at this in a historical perspective. Joining us now is Hamish Telford, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Hamish, thanks for joining us this morning. You're welcome, Simi. Good to be with you again. What did you think when you heard this? Because you thought Abbotsford South, not again. 
Not again, exactly. Um, we, Abbotsford South has a particular history of this. Before we had um, Bruce Bannon, we had Daryl Plekis, uh, who left uh, the BC Liberals, sat as an independent. Uh, and before him, there was John Van Dongen, who also left the BC Liberals, uh, sat as an independent and flirted uh, with the Conservatives. Uh, so there's a particular history of it here. To some extent, I think it's a bit coincidental that it's happened in this variety. But there are some similarities between these three men uh, that helps uh, explain it, particularly uh, Bruce and and, and Daryl, uh, who didn't have a history of being party men. Um, what do you mean by that? Uh, they weren't longtime uh, members of parties. They weren't longtime uh, politicians. So Daryl Plekis had a career with me at the University of the Fraser Valley. He was a professor of, of criminology. Uh, and, and Bruce Bandman was a, a local um, chiropractor here in Abbotsford and served as mayor. So he got involved in politics, but being mayor is a singular position. It, there aren't really party politics going on uh, at the city level, certainly in Abbotsford at that time. And when you're mayor, you're definitely not really, um, you're running the show uh, as an individual. And, and academics make for terrible politicians. Trust me, <laughs> I work with them every day. And as a political hey, you're limiting I'm, your career choices right there, hey, man. As a political scientist, I know better than to go into politics. Okay, but that brings me to the question about knowing better. So in the history of floor-crossing politicians, it almost never works out well for that politician in the next election because voters get mad that they did this. So if that's why do this then, Hamish? Uh, because uh, I think in the case of the particular cases we've got here, they get restless, right? Parties went out, uh, in this case, in Abbotsford South to sort of recruit high profile candidates. So they went out and got sort of ambitious, energetic, successful uh, men and then didn't give them much to do. Uh, and they just got restless and, and, and wanted to, they're used, these are people used to being in the center of attention. Um, and, and they, they thought they had ideas that they wanted to contribute and, and, and were feeling increasingly frustrated, um, and, and basically outstayed their welcome. Um, and, and so they've left hoping that they can find sort of a better place in which to, to contribute their ideas. But, as you say, it, it rarely works out. In the case of Abbotsford South, it didn't work out for John Van Doggen. It didn't work out for Daryl Plakas. Well, we'll see if it works for Bruce Bandman. Usually it doesn't. Um, like, even if and, they like the party that you're going to, I feel like voters just don't like the fact that, hey, listen, we elected you as this. Why did you do this? Right. And we saw that in Vancouver with David Emerson, right? Oh, was elected classic. as a liberal and, and crossed on, you know. Literally <laughs> the next the day. Even, the next day, he crossed over to, to join the Harper Conservative cabinet, and and people in in his riding in Vancouver were understandably very upset. Um, it does occasionally work. Um, you can think of someone like uh, at the federal level, Scott Bryson, who did defect from from the Harper Conservatives and had a, a long career uh, in the with the the federal Liberal Party of Canada. Um, and, and, you know, Bruce Bannon is hoping that he's timed this right. What we're seeing right now in the opinion polls is the new BC United, the rebranded BC Liberals seem to be struggling to gain traction. They've, they've rebranded themselves and nobody seems to know who they are. While at the same time, um, the, the BC Conservative Party seems to be coming up. Um, they have a leader who had a seat in the legislature, John Rostad, and of course, uh, Pierre Polyev, um, the Pierre Polyev tide seems to be lifting all conservative votes. And, you know, it may be the case that BC Conservatives give the BC United a real run for the conservative vote 
in in the next election. So so Bannon may have timed this right. Of course, when we're talking the Fraser Valley, we're talking about a very conservative community. They will vote for the the dominant conservative party. And if that proves to be BC conservatives next time, that's how Abbotsford will vote. I feel like what politicians don't do in cases like this is they don't say to the voter, here's why I think you are going to be better served by my actions. What the, what I hear is, well, they weren't listening to me or I didn't feel good about this. Like as you were saying, right they they're used to being listened to and I didn't have enough to do. Well, that, what does that do for the voter? Yeah, my imagine. You know, I don't think the timing of this is coincidental. We've just come off the summer season. Politicians are out in the community, and uh, and and Bruce Bannon presumably was going to a lot of barbecues, talking to a lot of people, and uh, perhaps sensing that that there was a shift going on, at least amongst the select number of people that he spoke to, which of course would be a small proportion of the number of voters in in his riding. Um, and so maybe he got a sense that that he could better reflect their views. Um, uh, if he joined uh, the BC Conservatives, do you think there's something going on out there? Like, is that is there? We heard about this one poll, this one Main Street poll that puts the BC Conservatives in second place, but people go, "Well, that's one poll." But is there some kind of shift happening? Do you think there might be? Um, you know, and and we see this right in BC politics if we look at it historically. We had the CCF NDP as sort of the continuous party on the left since the 1930s. But the the opposition to the NDP has come in different incarnations over time. So the initial sort of uh, coalition against the CCF then in the 1930s, 40s was an actual coalition between liberals and conservatives. They were supplanted by Wacky Bennett and Sogreds for the next 50 years. Uh, Then BC liberals emerged as that sort of center-right alternative to um, the the NDP. Um, Now, maybe, possibly, um, the BC conservatives um, supplant um, uh, the, the, the BC United as that party of the right, or um, as has happened sometimes in BC history, we get uh, two centre-right parties or two conservative parties competing for the votes, uh, allowing the NDP to just win easily. Right. So uh, you mentioned the creation of the SoCreds there. That was originally supposed to be the big tent, right? And then the BC Liberals were supposed to be the big tent. And now BC United is supposed to be the big tent. Is this perhaps the end of the era of the big tent? beginning to look like that famed liberal conservative coalition is splintering uh, into its sort of two uh, factions, its conservative side and its liberal side. And if that does happen, then I think that gives the NDP a pretty easy path to to victory. Part of the challenge for, for Kevin Falcon is that BC United, BC liberals call them what you want. The part of the coalition they've lost was the more progressive urban voter in and around Vancouver. So to win uh, those voters back, Kevin Falcon had to sort of move the party towards closer to the center or to to the left. But since the party is now dominated more by conservatives, there were some who were not comfortable uh, with that. Even if that's the political logic, they weren't comfortable with him taking the party in that direction. And we've got John Rostad now uh, presenting Kevin woke uh, Kevin Falcon as being too woke. <laughs> if you can imagine, right. that's <laughs> um, I know hard but, to believe, but that's where we are at with BC politics, right? Exactly, and. and and, uh, and and I think that's partly the Pierre Polyev effect. You've got um, more conservative voters in, in the Fraser Valley and in the interior who don't want to give in to wokeness. And that makes Kevin... Whatever that job. means or whatever they think it is. Exactly. Right. Like it, in the end, so we've got a floor crossing here, which does happen every once in a while. Like, 
again, I don't understand why politicians do this. Do you think we might see more? I think we might. Um, you know, particularly we'll have to see how the polls go. And if, if BC United doesn't get their name out there, if they fail to sort of really gain some traction, uh, if BC Conservatives consistently are, are up in the polls um, and, and start, you know, really going up in polls, um, then I think we might see some mm. more of the um, backbenches of, of BC United, those more conservative, um, maybe more maverick types um, in, in the party um, coming over. Certainly mm-hmm. John Rostad and Bruce Bandman, are, they know who <laughs> are the potential floor crossers. <laughs> and, we know, and they're going to be you, taking them for a lot of dinner. And we know that you're still going to be an academic because you're like, you said academics make terrible politicians. Hamish, thanks, thanks for your time this morning. You're welcome, Sydney. That's Hamish Telford, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley, talking about the issue of floor crossing in politics. And if you are in Abbotsford, South, like, what do you think about your MLA deciding, I'm going to change parties? This is Mornings with Simi. Having decided that three shots were fired and having three sets of wounds to explain, the commission could only find either that all three shots hit their marks or that one of the three bullets hit two men. But if all three shots hit, then one of them would have had to pass through the president's neck and vanish in midair, hitting nothing and leaving no mark. Once again, Walter Cronkite there talking about the Kennedy assassination. I mean, you can call it a conspiracy theory or whatever, but I think it's fair to say that for decades, an awful lot of people have believed that something wasn't quite right with the official findings of the Kennedy assassination and all the different ways that the government looked into that, right? And you kind of heard it summed up there by Walter Cronkite. And now what we know about it or what we thought we knew about it is kind of being turned on its head again. And that is because of a former Secret Service agent. His name is Paul Landis. He's 88 years old. He served as one of the Secret Service agents that guarded First Lady uh, Jacqueline Kennedy on the day of the assassination. And he has now come forward and he claims to have witnessed something that completely challenges the official narrative and raises questions about the possibility of a second gunman in Dallas on that day. Now, we're going to need some help unpacking this. So we thought, let's turn to an expert on that. And that's why Jim Robinot is with us now, partner of Thompson Hine Law Firm and a presidential historian and Vanity Fair contributor. Jim, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Now, Jim, can you explain to us, in a nutshell, what is so sensational about these latest findings? Uh, the thing that is that is most remarkable about it is that Paul Landis found an intact bullet on the seat of the limousine behind where Kennedy was sitting um, on the on the ledge of that seat, not in the seat, but on top of it, where the back of the seat meets the trunk. And he found it right after Jackie Kennedy got up to, to walk in with her husband's body into the uh, the hospital at Parkland. And um, they uh, uh, what what happened was they found out that um, he left the bullet on Kennedy's stretcher, thinking that it needed to be there for the autopsy, but didn't tell anybody about it um, at the time because just the whirlwind that he was in. And the importance of it is that if that bullet was found there intact behind the president, then it means it hit the president shallowly in the back, probably an undercharged bullet, and then fell out with the last violent uh, shots to his head or with Jackie 
hitting his back, and you you can actually see her doing that in this Zabuda film, and getting it on her, getting it in her clothing, and as she reached up to grab part of his skull that was on the trunk in that famous scene, uh, right where she stretches over is where he found it. So it's probably likely she carried it in her clothing up there. Um, but what it means is that if that first bullet hit Kennedy in the back and stopped, then it didn't transit through him. As you just heard Walter Cronkite say, it didn't go through the front of his neck and then go on to hit Conley. That completely undermines the Warren report because it means that a second shooter probably had to shoot uh, Governor Conley uh, after that first shot was to hit Kennedy in the back. Okay. Why did Paul Landis wait so many years, 60 years, to come forward and say this? It, you know, it's a it's a complicated question, but I've spent, I started working, I had nothing to do with the book. He, he wrote it, and he wrote it before reading anything, um, because he really wanted to just write what his exact memory is. He is 88, but he's got a better memory than I do, and he, he's in remarkably great shape. Um, but his, you know, when he actually left the bullet in Trauma Room 1, and think about what was going on at that time. He had just witnessed 15 feet away, the president's head explode. They then take off to Parkland Hospital. He finds this bullet. He thinks somebody's, you know, a souvenir hunter might pick it up. So he instinctively picks it up, puts it in his pocket, is pushed into trauma room one next to the president's body. And everybody's told to get out almost right away. And he decides he needs to leave the bullet with the body because he knows he knows the wound was uh, was fatal. So he goes outside. And if you think about it, you know, sitting outside is Jackie Kennedy covered in blood, including her face. She still hadn't wiped her face off. And he's got to take care of her at that point. So he doesn't think much about the bullet, doesn't say anything to anybody because they are just in total chaos. And from that point forward, he brings the body back to uh, Washington with her and then with her and Bobby Kennedy goes to the 17th floor of the Bethesda Naval Hospital for the autopsy till five in the morning, comes back to the White House two hours later, gets no sleep. And that entire week is like that. So that entire week, he just doesn't think about the bullet. He thinks he left it uh, where it should be left, and he really doesn't think about it. It is complete chaos that week, um, and it's all understandable. After that point, he becomes Jackie Kennedy's Secret Service agent, and she cannot sit still. She is traveling here, there, and everywhere, and he's got to go with her. He's had no break. He has PTSD, and uh, the agents just didn't talk about what happened. They were all so... Um, remorseful about what had happened. They, did, they didn't even talk to each other about what had happened. So he then leaves six months later because he can't sleep at night. He's having recurring nightmares, and he just leaves and decides, right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suppress this. Jim, what does so this do to the record? Happened. What does this do to the record then of what we believe happened there? Um, what it does is you have to go back now and say, well, let's assume this is true. And if it's true, what does it mean? And what it means is, if you go back and look at the autopsy that night, uh, there were two FBI agents who kept very uh, good notes, a five-page report that they put together that was not part of the Warren Commission report. Uh, And those guys clearly said that the, the wound in the back could not be probed more than about an inch. It was a shallow wound, and the doctors couldn't figure it out. They tried to probe through it. So they didn't find that night that the bullet had transited the president gone out his neck. Um, if that, you know, if that's true, people got to start looking at those that FBI autopsy report a lot more closely and understand that's what really happened, not what later the next morning the autopsy doctors found out there was a wound in the front of the neck, and so they just assumed that it had gone through, but they didn't prove it. 
Um, and it turns out that's that's not what happened. What happened was a shallow wound in the back, not a transit wound through the president. It, it amazes me, Jim, that this story never ceases to fascinate us, right? Like we're still talking about this all these decades later. Yeah, you know, I've been asked that all week about that. Uh, the people in London are just going bananas about it. It's interesting how much the UK is interested in this. But, you know, they asked me that and I said, well, there's really two things going on here. One is, this was the end of the age of innocence. You know, it was this dynamic, handsome, you know, charismatic, visionary leader with this great family. And he is, uh, you know, he's cut down brutally in front of everybody. It just is like an insanity switch was turned on. So, you know, we still haven't recovered from that wound. Our body politics still suffers from it in so many ways, even today. So that's one thing. The other thing is it is the ultimate murder mystery. And people love murder mysteries. They love digging into it, trying to look at clues and what happened. Here, there are clues for everybody who wants to look to, you know, run down rabbit holes. And people love doing that. I mean, it's just a it's a fascination for so many people. So that's why all these years later, uh, it still is, you know, on everybody's everybody top of everybody's mind. They know where they were, you know, when the assassination happened, et cetera. Yeah. Jim, you nailed it, I think. Uh, Listen, thanks so much for your time on that this morning. Okay, happy to talk to you. That's a fascinating discussion. Jim Robinaud is a partner of the Thompson Hen Law Firm and presidential historian, Vanity Fair contributor, talking about upending, after all these decades, the official kind of theory of the Kennedy assassination. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So people who run an Airbnb in the city of Vancouver are supposed to get a license from the city. And they are supposed to display that license number on their listing on Airbnb. And they are supposed to follow all the rules that go with that. Boy, that's a lot of supposed to, isn't it? But we also know that it doesn't always happen, does it? There is a proliferation of listings on Airbnb of short-term rentals in the city, and not all of them are following the rules. In fact, it's not really very difficult to find that out, just to go on Airbnb and see that. And so a bit of a surprise decision uh, last night at a Vancouver City Council meeting where they were talking about hiking the fees for certain things. Short-term rental license fees came up and they were talking about hiking them from about $100 to about $400. But then Councillor Lenny Zhao proposed an amendment saying, no, 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 we should increase this to about $1,000. And guess what? It passed unanimously. So that is a big change. What kind of a difference will this actually make? But Lenny Zhao joins us now to talk about that, Councillor for ABC Vancouver. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Hi, good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. Why did you think this is going to make a difference? Raising the license fee to $1,000? Well, you know, I think I must strongly believe that uh, raising the uh, business license fees must go hand in hand with a stronger enforcement. So this amendment does exactly that. This additional revenue generated from the uh, increased license fees will enhance our enforcement efforts by hiring more inspectors or the uh, enforcement officers could help us enhance our capability to identify and address these non-compliant short-term rental operations. It could also help us, you know, invest data analytics tools and advanced technology that could make the enforcement process more efficient. You know, we can easily track and communicate with these illegal short-term rental operators. I think also very important, it could help us support public engagement and the public education. You know, I think uh, we can raise the awareness of these short-term rental regulation and their consequences. 
so the public they are aware of this regulation. You know, also, you know, I, I've been talking to different illegal short-term rental operators. I think, you know, many of them, they don't even know there is a regulation about short-term rental. They thought they can do whatever they want with their own unit. And many of them, they don't even speak English. And they have re- maybe they have received incorrect information from their realtors. So this amendment could really you know, help us allocate more resources for community engagement and education, right. especially right. using different language. Yeah, Councillor Zhao, it's, it wasn't, it's not hard to find people who are breaking the rules, though, right? You said you talk to them, you can go on Airbnb, and within 30 seconds, you can find all sorts of people breaking the rules. So how come we haven't been cracking down before now? Well, you know, I think one of the issues, there are so many illegal short-term rental operators out there. So, you know, with the limited resource we have in the city, and also there's no uh, provincial mandate to request Airbnb to share the data with city. It is really hard. And also, I, I, I have to admit, uh, our technology is outdated. We have to update our technology, make this process more efficient, so we can flag those illegal operators automatically. So that's why, you know, I think this motion could bring us the revenue to enhance our uh, uh, enforcement. Aren't you worried about, though, that if you do increase it to $1,000, that people just won't get a license? Uh, I don't think so. You know, I think it's a valid question, but I don't believe so. I think even with uh, $1,000 uh, fees, uh, the short-term rental remain highly lucrative in Vancouver. You know, do you think that legitimate operators would choose to operate illegally just to save $800? You know, especially they can make the money back within two to three days. I really doubt it. And also they have to take the risk because we all know the province will have some upcoming legislation could perhaps impose higher, higher penalties with stronger regulation. So I don't think they want to take the risk. And also I think, um, you, know, uh, you know, with the additional revenue, we're going to enhance our uh, abilities for the uh, uh, enforcement. So we're going to spot this illegal short-term rental underground easily and take our proper actions. So I think with all this, I don't think they're going to take the risk just for the $800. I don't think so. How soon will this take effect? Well, this is going to be uh, uh, taking effect uh, as of uh, uh, 2024, so it will be January 1st. Okay, so that's going to happen pretty quickly then. Pretty now, quickly. Yeah, so you've been hearing a lot about this. You know, the province is going to be doing something. Did you hear what they did yeah. in, in New York City? Do you think Vancouver really needs to crack down here? Well, I think we should enhance our enforcement and also, you know, we should increase the fine. But uh, I don't have too much details from the province yet. I'm really looking forward to see what uh, the province has to put forward in their new legislation. Right. But in New York City, look, at they really crack down, right? Do you think Vancouver needs to do something like that? Well, I don't think so, because really we're in a, sh- a shortage of hotel space. We really need to support the legal short-term rental operators. And also, as we all know, owning a home in Vancouver is very expensive. So, you know, I think we need to support people using their unit for legal short-term rental business as a mortgage helper. It, it is not fair to, pop, to punish the good operators for the behavior of bad operators. So I don't think we should, uh, you know, shut it down completely. Is, is there a limit, though? Like, there's a lot of operators right now, that, and that affects housing, that affects all sorts of things. Like, where, how do we find the balance between we need some hotel suites, but we also need rental housing? Yeah, so that's exactly the, uh, the other motion that I put forward by my co- uh, colleague, Councillor Kirby Young, regarding increasing the uh, uh, hotel space. That would, it has to go hand-in-hand hand together. 
So, you know, we need to increase the hotel space. There's a big shortage. And Vancouver is a popular destination in, on this planet. So we need to make sure that, uh, you know, the tourism support our economy. At the same time, we should allow people to use their uh, 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 short-term rental, uh, if they have a unit for the legal short-term rental business, so they can support their mortgage. So it should be, there should be a balance there. Okay, so you're saying in January this will take effect. It's going to take a while to then hire people. So we're really looking like at another year before enforcement takes effect here, don't we? Uh, I don't think so because, you know, the legislation is coming soon from the province in the fall. So I expect it's, it's going to be very soon. So we're going to, you know, there will be some uh, new way we're going to do the uh, enforcement. And also, as I mentioned in different programs, I think uh, by September, City of Vancouver will implement some new enforcement tools so that would allow us to improve the current process. So everything is going to a right direction. I'm very positive we're going to have a very significant impact in huh. this short-term rental market. All right. I look forward to talking more about it. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Simi. Thank you for having me. That is Lenny Zhao, City Councillor for ABC. Uh, put forward a motion last night at Vancouver Council to not only increase the license fee for a short-term rental from $100 to $400, but to actually go from $100 to $1,000. And you know what? It was adopted unanimously. Bit of a surprise, but yeah, to, it will take effect in January. So if you uh, want to have a short-term rental in your property in the city of Vancouver in January, you will need to get that license that will cost you $1,000. Now, you're supposed to have a license now to do it. And when you look at the listing on Airbnb, it should have the registration number there. However, not every listing does, and not all those registration numbers are actually legit ones. They might be expired ones. Like It's not hard to go online and find that. So the question is, how does the city enforce all of this? Well, they say some of the money from this increased registration is going to go towards uh, getting more enforcement, making that happen, collecting that money. I mean, some of the the law-breaking on Airbnb listings is just so brazen because the rules are pretty straightforward. You have to, it has to be connected to the main house and it has to have like a, a access to the property, to the main house, essentially. So even if it's a basement suite or bedroom in the basement, it has to be connected. It can't be a separate standalone uh, suite. You can't do that. It has to be connected to the house. And yet, take a look on Airbnb. You will see a lot of stuff that is just flouting the rules there. So how much of a crackdown should there be? Should it be as big as the one they're doing in New York City, or is it about finding the balance, like Councillor Zhao was saying. Let me know, simi at cknw.com. You can also call or text our buzz line, 604-331-2899. Do you support this? The idea of raising those short-term license fees to $1,000. I think a lot of people will say, yeah, if you're making a lot of money off Airbnb, then you should be paying $1,000 a year for that license.